The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. When I started out in the legal profession, the percentage of practicing barristers who were women was probably about four to five percent. Now, things have changed dramatically since then. But yes, I think one's gender did. It wasn't so much a disadvantage, but it just meant that one had to try harder and work harder than the men. But later on, I have a sneaking suspicion that it was an advantage. Hello, listeners. It is Yasmin. Happy New Year. And I hope you had a lovely Christmas, as best as can be expected in the current circumstances. And I'm hoping that 2021 will be a better year for all of us. Well, we can start by helping you in that regard because we have a fantastic guest lined up for you. I was hugely excited when um, this guest PA agreed that um, she would come and speak to us on the hearing podcast. The next guest is Lady Hale. And I remember I texted a couple of friends because I was so excited to interview Lady Hale. And I asked them, what would you ask her? Well, they weren't terribly helpful. They said, oh gosh, we'd be too nervous and too starstruck. We wouldn't know what to say. Well, let me tell you, in this interview, you'll probably hear, I was a little bit nervous and I was very starstruck. Why? Well, it's Lady Hale. She is a legal trailblazer. She was the first woman to be appointed to the Law Commission. She was the first female law lord and the first female president of the Supreme Court. Of course I was nervous. Um, but she was absolutely charming. She spoke about many things, including her legal career, the barriers that she faced, um, some standout moments, the judgments she's proud of, and of course, her brooches. So tune in and listen to this fab interview. The Hearing. So Lady Hale, thank you so much for joining us um, on The Hearing podcast. Um, A lot of lawyers will already know who you are and I think you were really um, brought to the attention I think of of the main public after um, September 2019 when you were president of the Supreme Court when you declared um, the Prime Minister's suspension of Parliament was unlawful but most people knew who you were before that anyway. What I wanted to do is really start with your journey into law. Could you tell me a little bit about why law? What, What attracted you to law? at the beginning of your career? That's quite a difficult question uh, to answer. Uh, I was at a very small girls high school in North Yorkshire uh, and thought to be capable of getting to Oxford or Cambridge. Uh, But my best subject at school was history. My headmistress did not think that I was a natural historian. And she started to ask me what else I might do. Her idea was economics which I didn't fancy at all. And so my idea was law, which to her credit, she didn't say nonsense, girls don't do law, or they only do law if it's in their families, or nobody from this school has done law before, which was true. She didn't say any of that. She said, oh, right, fine. We can't give you any help, but um, that sounds like quite a good idea. Why had I thought of law? Mm. Quite hard to... um, answer that question. But I think that the answer is that I had become very interested in constitutional history. We had studied, it must have been uh, for 
what were then called O-levels, um, the constitutional history of the 17th century. And I was fascinated by the battles between the king and parliament and the judges, uh, which resulted in two revolutions uh, and, in effect, the constitution which we have today, or something very like it. Uh, and I think I thought there is something about this law stuff which is interesting and challenging, and I'd like to know more about it. That's my best excuse. <laughs> and did you have at that point any role models or um, you said it's a difficult question to answer why law. Was there anybody in the public uh, sphere that, that influenced you, can you think? No, I think not. Um, I think the priority was getting to Oxford or Cambridge. Mm. which was a family ambition as well as a school ambition. Uh, and so the idea was to try and find something which fitted well with my A-level subjects, which were history, Latin and French. Mm. Very good preparation for reading law, uh, that combination. And, and which wasn't history, <laughs> basically. Yeah. I think that was the focus. I cannot think then of a role model whom I would have had. I would later, of course, uh, have Rose Halbron as a role model, you know, one of the greatest female advocates ever, and certainly one of the most famous uh, advocates during the 1950s, an amazingly brilliant woman in many ways, uh, including the fact that she was beautiful and had a beautiful voice and became the second High Court judge. But I wouldn't have known about her when I was having this conversation with my headmistress. Sure. And, and you were the, I believe, Lady Hale, you were the first um, person at that school to actually go to Cambridge. Is that correct? Yes, I was the first to go to Cambridge. They mm. had had two or three girls go to Oxford before. Mm. Right. Uh, but uh, nobody had gone to Cambridge. And in those days, you could apply for both. And I did. But Cambridge was the one that gave me an exhibition. That's a minor scholarship. And so off I went to Cambridge. And you make a habit of being the first of a lot of things. So um, you were the first woman to be appointed to the Law Commission, the first female law lord, and the first female president of the Supreme Court. It was quite, quite amazing achievements. Um, and you speak about um, gender diversity and representation of, of women um, at the bar and in the judiciary. Um, I wondered whether there were any moments when you felt that your gender was an issue in, in your legal career. I suppose that throughout my life, because remember I'm 75 years old, so uh, I was starting out on my career a long, long time ago. Only a tiny number of women went to university at all. There were fewer places at the high school for girls than there were at the grammar school for boys. There were three colleges for women in Cambridge and 21 colleges for men. Yeah. So already, you know, one's gender is uh, meaning that more is asked of one to get on than is asked of the boys or the men. And when I started out in the legal profession, I've forgotten the percentage, but the percentage of practicing barristers who were women was probably about four to five percent. 
Now, things have changed dramatically since then. Um, really, beginning in the 70s, they changed. But yes, I think one's gender did. It wasn't so much a disadvantage, but it just meant that one had to try harder and work mm. harder yeah. uh, than the men. But later on, I have a sneaking suspicion that it was an advantage because when it came to the Law Commission, you're talking now 1984, the beginning of 1984, I think that those who were choosing the new Law Commissioners, there were two vacancies amongst the five commissioners, were very pleased that they were able to appoint a woman. Mm. And I think when I came to the end of my Law Commission years and I was invited to become a High Court judge in the old days of the tap on the shoulder. I think they were very pleased to be able to appoint another woman to the High Court. There were only six of us at the time. Mm. I think I was the 10th ever woman High Court judge. So, and I expect they were not displeased to be able to promote me to be the second woman uh, in the Court of Appeal and indeed to be the first woman in the House of Lords. Mm. And what barriers did you face then, do you think? You said it's an advantage, it was an advantage mm. at points to, to be a woman in, 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 that, in the legal mm. profession, but what were the barriers that you faced, apart from feeling like you were in the minority with you know, male-dominated um, profession? Uh, and I think you were only one in six women at Cambridge as well when you studied law, so that must have been a strange experience what, what other barriers were there apart from feeling different I guess and having to work probably twice as hard to prove yourself uh, there was one in six uh, no, there were only six uh, uh, women law students in my year at Cambridge right I think there was probably only one or two in the year above I seem to remember uh, so we were uh, a very small minority that's quite enough you know to be in a small minority Mm. As I'm sure if you talk to anybody else, um, if you talk to somebody from an ethnic minority who walks into a room full of people and is the only person who looks like her or him, mm. that's quite a barrier. And for many of my classes at Cambridge, I was the only woman in the class. That's in the small groups of supervisions. Yeah. Except, of course, uh, with our uh, supervisor in family law, uh, who decided that he'd better have all the women together um, <laughs> I don't know why he wanted to, all the women rather than having a mixed group. And um, what, what do you think it would, would make it easier for, for women and people from non-traditional backgrounds to thrive in their legal career? The main thing for thriving in a legal career is to enjoy it and work hard at it, be the best you possibly can at what you're doing. That's the advice I always give to people starting out. Because if you enjoy it, you'll work hard at it. And if you work hard at it, you'll be the best that you can. And that's what's needed for a successful career of any sort, but particularly in the law. And the other thing is, the law is nothing like as male-dominated as it was when I started out. I mean, it really isn't. In fact, there are more solicitors who are women than there are men. Um, about 50-50 uh, at the bar. Well, starting out at the bar, the problem the problem is always attrition in the senior Absolutely. ranks, yeah. both of solicitors, barristers, and judges, uh, and that's a problem for all professions. Mm. 
And, and what can be done about that? I mean, I know you've spoken about um, objecting to positive discrimination. I think you mm. said, you know, no one wants to feel that they got the job in any other way than their own merits. What, what can we do? Is it just time to, to, for things to change naturally? Or do you have any other ideas of what we can do to change that? Well, time is a help. Uh, but I think there are other things as well. Um, I do object is putting it a bit strongly, but I do not favour positive discrimination in the sense of choosing somebody who is less well qualified of course, for yeah. the work uh, over somebody who is better qualified uh, simply because of their protected characteristic, whether it's gender or ethnicity or whatever. Huh. I don't favour that. Uh, but I do favour looking much harder to attract meritorious candidates from a range of places that haven't previously been thought about mm. as uh, pools in which to fish, for example, for High Court judges. Uh, I also favour recognising that there's a problem and trying to think of creative ways of doing something about it. As I say, one is fishing in, in wider pools, another is having open and transparent selection processes, Another is thinking very hard about what your selection processes are and whether they actually favour traditional candidates when they don't need to. Another is thinking very hard about what you mean by merit. All of those things, you can make a big difference and big differences are being made. Mm, absolutely. No, that's really helpful. And um, you're, I'm looking at, you've had such a massive impact in the legal profession. I mean, obviously as president of the Supreme Court, um, everybody knows about you declaring um, the Prime Minister's suspension of Parliament unlawful. Um, you were um, instrumental can, can in... I, excuse me, sorry Yasmin, can I interrupt and be a bit pedantic? Yes, go for it. What was unlawful was the Prime Minister's advice to mm. Her Majesty that Her Majesty should pro prorogue Parliament. Yes, thank you for that correction. I think that's um, an important it, point to make. Well, it is in a way, and it meant, therefore, that the prorogation itself was null and void. Mm. But the, the unlawfulness was the advice to Her Majesty. Mm. Sorry to interrupt. But no, I'm, no, absolutely. You, you, you put me straight. <laughs> I love it. Um, is, that judgment, is that a judgment that you're particularly proud of, or are there other standout moments for you in your career? How do you feel about that judgment? Well, my main feeling about that judgment uh, was um, admiration and gratitude to my colleagues on the court and to the court staff. We were able to get the case on very, very quickly. Uh, we were able to sit uh, a full bench of 11 justices, that's the maximum number that serving justices that could sit, we were able to get the judgment out. We finished the hearing on the Thursday and we got the judgment out on the Tuesday morning. Mm. Now that is fast work. Uh, and so that's my main source of um, satisfaction uh, about, about that. And I happen to think that we were entirely right. And of course, all 11 of us uh, subscribed to that judgment. So um, that uh, reinforces my view. Mm. Um, there are others that are much less well-known, but I'm also pleased about. Uh, there was a case, an immigration case, uh, where 
we held that the best interests of British citizen children had to be first priority when considering whether to deport their mother. It happened to be that context, but it was basically in official decisions uh, of all kinds. The uh, best interests of any children who were affected by the decision had to be taken into account, not necessarily the overriding uh, consideration, but they had to be the first consideration. Um, so I'm very proud of that. Mm. And I'm also proud of a decision where we held that violence meant more than hitting or threatening to hit. It could include all the many forms of abuse which may cause harm to the victim uh, of that uh, violence, what we would now call coercive control. Mm. They hadn't invented the phrase then, I don't think. So that's, that had a knock-on effect, obviously, in domestic violence remedies and in homelessness, and many, many contexts where that concept is used. Of course, the whole world knows about it now because of the archers, but they didn't I was know just about, about to, Yeah, I was just about to mention the archers, actually, because mm. I think so many people after those episodes rang um, Refuge and other um, organisations which help predominantly women get out of abusive relationships because they recognised, didn't they, that actually what they were experiencing was a form of domestic violence. So the archers has got a lot of people, um, it really brought it to their attention, didn't it? It, it, it really did. And the, the great thing about it was that the listeners knew what was happening. They could see that Rob was bit by bit depriving Helen of her agency and her self-esteem and basically her power. Um, the neighbours, the family and friends couldn't see it mm. because they didn't see what, what we heard. And that, of course, is, is part of the problem with something like that. Mm. And I think it was even more powerful because it was radio as well. We couldn't see it, but there was something yes. really palpable about, you know, that experience. And we felt that we were with Helen. I, I did anyway. I thought it was an amazing storyline, the way they, they developed it over, it was, I think, over three, four months or something. Oh, or yes. Longer. And of course, the aftermath went on for even longer. Mm. Um, and uh, so it's no, it was it was it was very good. The Archers does sometimes do some good stuff, doesn't it? It does. So I take it you're a fan then. Well, I <laughs> have listened to it a lot when I was uh, young. I then probably had a spell of not listening to it, then went back to it. And of course, you could pick up where you, you know, the, the same characters are there. They're just a bit older and oh, behaving yeah. slightly differently because yeah. they move with the times just as as we move with the times. So it's one of these programmes that it's quite easy to be addicted to, uh, but also there have been occasions when I have not listened to it. Mm. I do listen to it now, mostly. Yeah. So I know what their current storyline is. Yes. So how, how else do you relax, Lady Hell? I mean, radio is obviously a, a great mm. a source of entertainment, and, and particularly during lockdown, what, what have you been up to since your retirement from the Supreme Court? Well, I was going to do all sorts of things, as you can imagine. I got... Yeah. Uh, several foreign conferences or lectures uh, arranged, um, some of them as far away as New Zealand uh, or California. So I was looking forward to all of that. 
I'd got lots of other sorts of events, you know, um, lectures, conferences, uh, festivals of one sort or another. And then most of them were either cancelled or postponed until gradually people have started to uh, do things remotely that they would normally do face to face, but like something like this. And, yeah. uh, and so there are now quite a few uh, of those events which are most enjoyable to do and keep the mind occupied. Okay. But my main distraction uh, during lockdown has been writing my memoirs. Oh, when are they out then? Later this year, I trust. Excellent. So that's keeping you busy then? Well, it has kept me busy. It goes in fits and starts. You know, I, you do a first draft and then you get the editor's uh, comments back and then you work through those, which is what I'm doing at the moment. But uh, oh. it, it, it does keep me busy. And various other little bits and bobs of, of writing or thinking or mm. whatever. So that's how I've been spending my time uh, professionally. But I wouldn't call that leisure, although I enjoy it. So perhaps it is leisure. Perhaps everything you enjoy is leisure, in which case most of life. Mm. Yes. And can you give us a sneak preview of any part in the memoir, any, any, anything that you'd like to share, or is it, is it kept under wraps? Well, I'm not going to be dishing any sort of gossipy dirt on no. any. Um, that's not the sort of thing that I want to do. One of my colleagues on the Supreme Court, Lord Brown, has published his memoirs uh, recently and he concentrates on the funny stories in his life well i have to tell more than the funny stories i have to tell the sad ones too mm. but what i noticed about his book was that if he was saying something nice about somebody he would name them but if he was mm. saying something critical about somebody he wouldn't name them and i think that's a very decent thing to do and so i am mm. trying <laughs> to uh, copy him in, in that yes so is it a blend of some funny stories and some some serious ones as well is that the oh yes it, the... it's it is it's well it's it's the story of episodes in my life and how things have changed since i was there like how universities have changed since i was mm. there how schools have changed since i was there and of course, there are quite a few accounts of legal cases in which I've been involved. Mm. Sometimes the ones I'm proud of and sometimes the ones I'm perhaps not so proud of. I'm really looking forward to reading those memoirs. So um, <laughs> which, which ones have you not been proud of then? Are, are there some disappointments in your legal career that you can think of? I think that there are disappointments when I had to dissent, I had to disagree with um, my fellow judges. That's never a happy experience, although one tries not to be rude about it. Um, but uh, you always want to bring people around to your point of view, if, if you can. Um, and of course, there are also disappointments, you know, if you're in the High Court or the Court of Appeal, and a higher court overturns your judgment. That's very disappointing. Mm. You have to grin and bear it. So, yes, there have been, of course, quite a few of those. Mm. I know a lot of your judgments are concerned with um, women and, and, and changing things for them. Uh, do you think the law has a lot of catching up to do, for example, for um, trolling of women and technology? It's, it's advanced so much and the law needs to catch up. I think I read something about 
you, you had a view on that? Well, I'm sure that the law needs to evolve all the time uh, mm. to meet changing circumstances. Uh, and the advent of social media is one of those changing circumstances. And it may well be that there is a need for, I mean, not only necessarily uh, new criminal offences, that's not always the answer, sometimes uh, better regulation of the platforms is, is the answer or a combination. Uh, but that's a law reform task, it's not a judging task, and uh, it's best done by people who've got the resources to research the problem, the causes of the problem, think through what the best solution is. The sort of thing we used to do at the Law Commission, uh, rather than judges trying to mend things all by themselves, which they usually mm. can't. Yeah. And I'm, I'm jumping around here, but... Um, there was a fact I didn't know actually that you you were also a judge on MasterChef. Um, how did no, that I wasn't come a about? <laughs> oh, well, I thought you were a judge. Well, I was a consumer. Oh, that you sounds know, the, far more fun. Yeah. Well, the um, the format I think it's probably for most um, programs, but certainly for those that I've watched, is that the contestants uh, cook a meal for a group of consumers. And the program got together a group of prominent women because it was celebrating 100 years since women got the vote. So it must mm. have been in 2018. Uh, and I was one of those. And it looks as if you're having a seamless service of a nice lunch. Uh, but in fact, of course, it isn't at all like that. It takes hours. They uh, they film a little bit of what's going on and then you have a pause and then they film another little bit of what's going on and then they have a pause. So <laughs> it took oh. ages. <laughs> and we were expected, of course, to comment on the food on our plates and so on. And the trouble is, I'm far too critical. Uh, <laughs> I was sitting next to Kate Adie, who might know reasonably well, yeah. and she, she got it exactly right. She, she was enthusiastic and she picked out the things that she liked about the food or the presentation the flavours or whatever. Um, the trouble is, uh, I didn't much like most of the food. I thought it was <laughs> over elaborate and over decorated and um, not as flavoury as it ought to have been for that reason. Uh, but I, I tried to be reasonably <laughs> enthusiastic, but I don't think I succeeded very well. <laughs> Are you? A bit, <laughs> but it are was you good. Bit, it was. It was a nice experience. It was oh, I bet. Good. Yeah. Are yeah. you a bit of a cook then? Is that a passion of yours, or you just like eating? <laughs> oh well, both, of course. We all yeah. like eating, don't we? Absolutely. Um, uh, when I was still at the court, my husband used to do the weekday cooking. If we weren't going out, and we did go out quite a bit, uh, he did. He did the day-to-day -day cooking. He was cooker man and shopper man. He used to say. Um, but since I've retired, I've done most of the cooking and uh, I enjoy it. And I'm determined to, to cook properly for myself during uh, lockdown um, because it's so easy to slip into, oh, I'll just have a pizza or I'll have a sandwich or whatever. And I think yeah. it's good to cook a proper meal um, yeah. every day. I'm 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 finding that as well. I'm cooking more and baking more. I don't know what's happening to me, but I'm again. There's probably more time, and you can structure your time better. I think when you're probably at home and not rushing to meetings and traveling, um, and it's quite a nice thing to do, a ritual. And it so I'm, I'm I'm finding I'm doing that as well. Um, another thing I'm doing is I'm um, 
letting myself go a bit <laughs> because we don't have to dress up. I mean, now we're not seeing each other, are we? We're on, um, we haven't got the, we've just got audio. Are you still wearing your famous brooches in lockdown? That's the question I think the listeners will want to know. Well, if I am being seen, so we're doing this on Zoom, and of course, normally on Zoom, you can be seen. Yeah. I do make a point of wearing a brooch. Have you got one on now? Actually, I don't, because oh. this is audio, so I don't have to have a brooch on. Um, <laughs> but uh, if, it's, if it's video, I will have a brooch on. Oh, I love your brooches. I think the spider brooch is probably what my favourite one, definitely. Do you have a favourite brooch? Um, no, I've got an awful lot of brooches and they tend to migrate onto a particular garment and stay there. Yeah. So the choice of garment dictates the choice of brooch, which was definitely <laughs> the case um, on the prorogation uh, judgment day. Yeah. It was the dress I chose. I didn't choose the brooch. Yeah. But, uh, but I do have quite a few spiders, yes. Um, <laughs> is there, before we finish, Lady Hell, is there anything that you think the listeners would find surprising about you? <laughs> you mean something I'm prepared to share? Well, you can if you want to, yes. <laughs> um, well, when, when my daughter and I did um, Relative Values, you know, the Sunday Times piece. Oh, yes, I read that, yeah. Um, one of the uh, questions was, what's surprising? What would other people find surprising about your mother or your daughter? Uh, I said about my daughter what heavy weight she could lift, which is true, even though she's smaller than I am. Uh, and what she said about me was that uh, if you looked in her handbag, you would always find a very difficult piece of Sudoku and a pencil so that she can mm -hmm. keep herself occupied if she's got to wait for anything. And that is true. Brilliant. Actually, I've met you, I met your daughter at an event and I have to say she spoke brilliantly um it was the best diversity talk i've ever been to she spoke about diversity and uh, yes. yeah, yeah really passionate and excellent speaker yes she is i'm very very proud of her and i'm sure she's very proud of you as well lady hell you've been a fantastic guest so thank you so much for sharing your journey and i wish you all the best and, and i cannot wait to read those memoirs when they're out thank you very much indeed yasmin the Hearing. So thank you for listening to The Hearing Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast or if you've got any feedback, good or bad, or suggestions of guests or topics, then please do follow us on Twitter at Hearing Podcast or you can find me at Diverse Matters. Subscribe, rate us, comment. We'd love to hear from you. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.